I mean, no offense here, but a strong opinion right at the bat so I can give this introduction. Harry Potter um, was, in my opinion, uh, pretty ignorantly, and that's just an opinion, I don't, I don't mean to offend, uh, boycotted by many who were well-meaning, I believe, Christ-loving Christians when it first came out in the late 90s. Uh, this does continue uh, to be the case today regarding Harry Potter, and if you are of that persuasion, then please ignore this short introduction, uh, and please know that I mean zero offense, okay? However, if you are a Harry Potter fan of any kind, um, or you just are interested in it, um, you probably know a famous potion that gets revealed in the books or the movies, and it's a, it's a potion by the name uh, Felix Felicis, Felix Felicis. It's a play on words by the author J.K. Rowling, who kind of stands in the tradition of the education that our boy Felix in the text actually would. Greek-Roman thought, classical adventuring into the arts and trying to write something imaginative out of it. Felix would have been familiar with that kind of thought, having read Homer growing up and things like that. Well, Rawling, who knows Latin, uh, writes this uh, as the potion's name. And this is what the potion does. When, when it's drunk, it makes a someone happy beyond measure, and it makes their, their day perfectly successful. Now, the male given name, Felix, it's based on the word in Latin, which means happy. Uh, you may, if you know the books and the movies, know that the, the potion's also called liquid luck. Uh, liquid luck. The person who drinks a vial of Felix in, in the stories will have all their wants come true uh, naturally uh, for that 24-hour period. But here's the catch. The stuff takes six months to concoct in the book. And in that six-month process of brewing it, it can kill you in about 100 ways. It's extremely volatile. It's also extremely toxic. If you take too much of it, it can kill you. And as you take too much of it, it will cause giddiness, recklessness, and dangerous overconfidence if you take it in excess in the stories. Now, Harry Potter is, of course, fake. It's a work of fiction, full of imagination. But I would argue full of fake t uh, fairy tale that is largely borrowed like all good stories are, whether you hate Harry Potter, surely you like stories, right? All the good we love in our fairy tales is usually derived from a principle that is absolutely true and beautifully true in the scriptures. It's just robbing from what God has said is true and presenting it oftentimes in twisted ways. You see, the Bible is, of course, uh, not fictitious. It's nonfiction, and it is absolutely true. Now, why do I bring up... Felix uh, Felicis, the potion from Harry Potter, as my introduction this morning. Is it because I want to offend you if you have a different opinion? No, I can't say that enough. So don't be distracted by that. I'm bringing it up because the side effects of it, as the storyteller tells it uh, in the book, are a perfect commentary on what we know historically about our passage's main characters. So outside of Paul, Felix and his wife, Drusilla. We know that... Uh, by studying history and historical accounts of the Jewish historian Josephus or the Roman historian Tacitus, that when it comes to this two, this, this governor, this young Jewish princess that he's married, they lived a life full of excess and giddiness and recklessness and dangerous overconfidence. They lived such a life. And so maybe I can say it like this before moving on. They were Kardashian. They were Kanye West. They were Lindsay Lohan-like. They were Britney Spears-like. Train wrecks of the Greco-Roman world in a lot of ways. They were the high society of Rome. They were ready to party and bore themselves to death on the numbing effects of a life of sin. This is who they were. By all accounts, we would conclude that this couple are lost have you ever just stopped for a minute? Because we talk as Christians about lost people. But have you ever asked yourself, why do we call people like this lost? Well, one pagan historian uh, spoke the answer about Felix. He wrote about Felix. He said, he, like many Roman leaders, is someone who makes a desert and then calls it peace. In other words, he destroys his life in leadership and, and the people he's leading, and it's so destructive that by the time it's over, it's desert, it, it, it's abandoned, it's wilderness, it's, it's a realization at the end of all of the pleasure that, whoa, I am ruined. And then he just called that peace. That's a lot how the Romans thought. 
People who love sin, that lead their lives by sin, are deceived by sin, are lost. They take cities um, that maybe are flourishing and doing well. They take moments that, that want to be used for good. And then they bomb them and destroy them until what's left is a deserted place. Often then they say, that's my peace. Lost people do this. They're on the wide road of destruction, the Bible says. They're causing destruction to themselves and others. They're brewing liquid luck in their life. If they don't die in sin while they make it, if they, as they use it, ruin their life, and we meet them at that place, we will find them poisoned, overconfident, and on track to regret a death in hell for all of eternity. When we say people are lost, this is what we mean. Does God care about people like that? Some head nods. You feel the weight of it, and it's rhetorical in that sense, I guess. He does. I'm sure to Paul's confusion, maybe even, in some sense, we'll see. God does care about such souls. He cares about them so much that for two years, that's not a misprint in your Bible. <laughs> for two years, God will allow a faithful witness to his resurrection to live alongside people that only value things antithetical against the gospel, which is incredible. Its sermon, the sermon title is Hard Time and Hard Conversations. Hard Time and Hard Conversations. Luke covers two years in 27 verses, which is a big rush for him now if you've been paying attention. And here's what we're going to cover in the next 30 to 40 minutes. Two points. Paul's perseverance. That'll be point one for you note takers. And then point two, Paul's passion. I'll give you some uh, notes to hang your hat on as we go, but we're going to see in this story Paul's perseverance, point one, and also Paul's passion. Because guess what? God does love people like Felix and Drusilla. First, since this is a historical narrative that some of you may be unfamiliar with or you need, again, to help us, context is very helpful. Let's do it quickly, though. Paul is on house arrest for two years at the end of our passage today. Well, what caused him to get such a you know, hard time uh, you know, sentence? Some would say that Felix is to blame. Uh, some would say the Roman system of law is to blame. Others would blame the Jews that have you know, brought accusation to him. Uh, but biblical wisdom actually says ultimately God. Now, rather than saying blame God, because that would wrongly imply that God is wrong, he is not, of course, wrong. It'd be impossible for God to be wrong about anything. We instead must say that God is providentially controlling these events. And he has been controlling the events of the apostle Paul for the last 25 years of his life while he gave that life to seeing churches planted, missions started, works going on in the whole known world. Paul's been doing it. And now God is sovereignly going to place him in one place with a limited witness here and a greater witness in pen and in these meetings for two years. You see, God has a plan all the time in Acts. Paul loves and obeys God. And I think it's revealed that these two late years of Paul's life are to be played out under this house arrest, if you will. It happens at a seaside kind of castle palace of this man, Felix, who's the current procurator of Rome. Okay, that's like a governor who controls that area for Rome. Think of it like this. If Felix is doing a good job, there's not rebellion against Rome, and he's sending a bunch of money to, the, to, to Italy, okay? If he's doing that, he's doing well. He's doing well. And so here is the context. Now, what is Paul's perseverance? What does it look like? Brother, I see some fans, and I'm warm. You mind? Help us out. Thanks. What, are, what does Paul's perseverance look like? Three C's. Uh, the charges that are against him, the charity that he displays, and then the consequences. Don't worry, I'll give you those again. Well, listen, what are the charges? If that's the context, what are the actual charges in our text? Well, first, we need to note uh, that our context already told us the truth. These Jews show up uh, to this official trial with many lies. Uh, they're testifying in a lying way. Worse than that, they hired a lawyer, <laughs> This guy, Tertullus, uh, he, it's a common Roman name. We don't know anything about him, except that that's a very common Roman name. And so he's likely a Hellenistic 
That just means like a Greek-speaking and influenced Jew. They've hired him to represent them uh, before Felix. Notice Luke uh, in recording it. This is an abbre- all of this passage. It's likely abbreviated versions of what was said. So he's summarizing longer things. But do you notice that the majority of the charges, we don't even get to them because verse 2, 3, and 4 is this Tertullius laying it on thick on Felix. I mean, he's just praising the dude for how great he is. You need to note that regarding the charges because he's buttering him up uh, in every sense. Now, notice who's with him. You know, this is why they hired him. Because truthfully, they can't, with a good conscience, say these things about Felix themselves. Uh, The Jews hated uh, him. And history tells us that, honestly, in his eight years of rule in this area, uh, he only really stayed in power because he had a powerful brother named Paulus that was working in the cabinet of Caesar, if you will. So this guy is not uh, good toward the Jews. He's been a real jerk when it comes to trying to get him. So they hire this, this blowhard who can stand there and uh, praise where they can't because that was the right thing to do. And then he begins to charge Paul in verse 5. He calls him a plague. He calls him an insect. This guy's like a parasite. He's a parasite, Felix, who stirs up riots. Now, here's what's interesting about that charge. Y'all know that that's true, right? I mean, we know that. That's actually true. Paul has stirred up riots in Ephesus and Corinth. Now, he didn't mean to. He preached the, he preached the word, and then God you know, used the, what God was doing to cause the riot uh, you know, as the Jews were offended and, and incited these things. But, but notice, they bring that up, but they bring no further detail about where those things happen. You know why? Because if they said, hey, he did it in Ephesus, oh, Felix would be able to say, oh, all right, easy, easy done. He doesn't need to be tried here. Let's put him on a boat and get him over to Ephesus because that's where he needs to be tried. And these Jews, they don't want the charges to end in some long, drawn-out judicial process. They want blood. They want Paul dead. They also charge him not only for being like a plague, not only for being one who starts riots, but also as being part of a dangerous sect called the Nazarenes, which in this context basically means that they're accusing him of leading, leading fellow Jewish men to rebel against Rome. Nazarenes came about after, and, and they were a very much a strong sect uh, that, that, did, that did some of these things. That's, a, that's not true. But finally, what do they say? They say that he's profaned the temple, which is a lie. Now, a quick note before some of you get distracted. Notice verse 7. You can't if you're using the ESV. You have to notice a note about verse 7, for it's not included. Verse 7 is missing from the ESV. Your Bible will tell you if you're using it with notes that the Western... The Western original manuscripts, the translations that we have from Greek translated, um, they, on, they don't include, or they do include this. The Western scripts do. The other older manuscripts do not. You'll note there, though, if we were to read it, it does make sense. Look what it says. We would have judged him, if you're looking at the footnote, if you're not. Verse 7 would say, we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain, Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands. And starting in verse 8, it would actually say, commanding his accusers to come before you. And then on into verse 8 that we have there. Before you, by examining him yourself, Felix, you'll be able to find out what we've accused him of. Now, I don't want you to get distracted. Uh, Lysias did intervene. But here's why these aren't really included. It wasn't because of their, or it, excuse, it wasn't because of Paul's violence. It was because of their great violence. They were the ones beating Paul almost to death when Lysias stepped in, and now we are where we are. If you're interested in textual criticism, go to our website. Go to a sermon I preached in John about the adulterous woman and the passage there, and, and, and maybe that will help you to think about how our Bible came together. We made some points there. Also, you can visit with us. Beyond getting distracted, those are the charges. And the conclusion is, we think they're bogus. And Felix, and, and if you... If you see Felix sitting on a big chair in this, in this thing, propped up, eating grapes, you know, he's like wearing a fur jacket probably because, uh, you know, he likely is yawning. I, I view him that way. That's subjective, of course. The Bible doesn't say that. But Felix in the passage does what? Nods and then motions to Paul. Okay, let's hear it out. We don't know what he thinks yet at all. 
But what we see is, is that from this charges, we now see something else, Paul's answer. And I want you to write it down if you're taking notes as the charity of Paul. We're talking about Paul's perseverance here. Okay, he's been charged with a lot. I mean, if there's ever a time that Paul's wanting to stand up and, and just, you know, really hammer on them, surely this is it, right? No, I want you to see the charity. Paul should, I think, launch into how discredited they are, but he doesn't. He keeps his composure. He speaks highly, notice, of Jewish history that he shares with his accusers. He's actually extremely charitable. He points out thoroughly that they cannot prove any of what they've said in a credible way. I'll leave you to study his conclusions there. But two really clear things for time's sake do show up in his conclusion that we need to hear. Look at verse 16. He says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, brother and sister, that, that's very important when it comes to the perseverance of Paul here. Paul wants to be enduring by, in a faithful way charges against him. Paul wants to be charitable also. In order to do that, his conscience must be clear. Where? To God first and then to man. This was important to Paul because it was important to Jesus Christ. Christ did the will of his father first as he related to man. And any follower of Christ henceforth must also think like Paul's thinking here in 16. That's the first thing about charity. Look at the second. Go back up and pick up in verse 15 above that. Paul writes that he have, uh, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. See that? Okay, then skip down in verse 20 and 21. He finishes, let these men themselves say, what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. And here it was. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This is the second thing about charity. Here we see another very important element, I think, in giving a testimony for Christ. Paul makes it clear that God gives the hope of the resurrection. Everything else that they're trying to throw at him, he's not going to get into the weeds about. He's going to, Luke tells us, stay on the main things. And if you remember from last week, what was the main thing that Paul left with them before he had to be moved by the Romans away from their violence? It was the resurrection. It was that, it was that, it is the resurrection of Christ and then of those who will be resurrected that Paul was on trial for. Paul makes it clear that something uh, he will not budge on, no matter what people say, is denying the resurrection of Jesus. He will not deny that. He does it in a charitable way. Paul's kind um, in the face of these wicked accusers, but he's also very, very clear. So these are the charges. That's the charity of Paul. Let's conclude point one then and apply, looking at what are the consequences Okay, that's what the text says, what happens. Well, look, look at verse 22, 23, describing the ruling that Felix gives. We'll read it again. 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that uh, he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. We could even see in 22 there that when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'm going to decide the case. Right now, he puts it off. What's happening here? Well, in short, it is a real loss for the Jewish men and their hired gun because they have failed to convince Felix that Paul needs to be right now handed over to them for execution. It's a real win of sorts for Paul and his company, right? Lysias, the tribune, is mentioned. And we remember from previous weeks that he's the main military leader in Jerusalem, which to remind you, that's about 55 miles away now at this point because we're on the coast. And Felix is going to wait on him. Um, something that uh, we think would mean maybe a month, right? Like maybe if he's waiting on him to get there, it's only that far away. I mean, they made the trip overnight even, uh, stopping over once when they got Paul here from Jerusalem. You know, maybe there's the, it, maybe a month is what we're thinking, right? Well, listen, you'd be wrong. 
The consequences of what has happened here is not a month. No, this will be the state of affairs for the next two years, the text tells us in verse 27. For two years after this point, the consequences are Paul will get explicit opportunity to witness, which is our next point in this sermon, to this couple, Felix and Drusilla. Implicitly, we know Paul's going to have lots of opportunities to help the churches through his writing and his receiving of visitors and guests. A gracious and kind thing for Felix to do for him. That's the consequences. In persecution, Paul, rather than being ripped to pieces or killed, stoned by these Jews, which could have happened, instead, God is going to give him two more years to do faithful gospel ministry at the resources of Felix, a pagan, non-believing Roman leader. Those are good consequences, are they not? How do we apply this? Okay, let me tell you, if you're a Christian, you better be ready to be misunderstood by people at a minimum, and you better be ready to be mistreated at a maximum by people if you're going to follow Jesus and make a habit out of letting others know that you follow Jesus and believe in him. We've said this last week. Those who desire to live a godly life, Paul writes, would what? They will be persecuted. So we must live in such a way as to learn and store up in our heart examples like this. Anyone who shares the gospel, who witnesses uh, to the hope that they have in Jesus, in one sense is leading out. I heard someone once say to me, and it stuck with me forever, any leadership is a commitment to being misunderstood. You are going to likely be misunderstood in your explaining and preaching of the gospel. It may even be to a point where it incites, like these Jews have for Paul, a lot of wrong thought and accusation. The question is, will you endure? Will you display, like Paul, and I hope I've shown you here, displays charity? Remember, Paul's not perfect in this. He is this week. But do you remember last week, just last week, where the same men got him so riled up when they slapped him across the face that he, instead of being patient, retorted? But look what God has done. In just a couple, a few days, he has given Paul another opportunity after that to stand and to bear witness for who God is in Jesus Christ. And he does it faithfully. That should encourage me and you as we persevere in our own efforts. We cannot give up. The word of God, Paul writes to the Galatians sometime uh, between 48 and 55. That means that he could have written it during this time. It's not the likely date, but he could have. Regardless of that, Paul writes and says, let us not grow weary of doing good, church. Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, I mean, you could change due and just be like, for in God's season, you could. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Brothers and sisters, I'm so glad Paul didn't give up. Are you? Two years, he can't go see the Ephesians. He can't go see the Colossians. He can't go to Galatia. He misses the saints in Jerusalem some 50 miles away that he knows are being persecuted for what he did. He's bound to this, but he's not giving up. He's not growing weary and doing good because he knows God will be glorified. You know, Christians are people that endure even when we're misunderstood and we're mistreated or else we better be. Are you? Will you prioritize witnessing to the lost if it inspires in them a hatred for you that wasn't there before? Will you? Or will you give up? Will you fall into the traps of a life that looks like the gospel, absent from the preaching of the gospel that must accompany your good works? Will you, like Paul, Endure persecution where it seems like all of life goes against you? Plug in your own thoughts about right now what is keeping you. It may not be the slap of a high priest, but it may be something very tangible. It may be something you could feel the sting of. 
finally notice in application here that Paul has in view this moment very clearly, yet he also has no idea what grace God has in store. You see, we're reading it with hindsight. Luke likely took advantage of this two years that Paul was there to be one of those visitors in and out, but also to leave and go to Jerusalem and collect eyewitness accounts as he gets ready to do what? To write the gospel of Luke. You ever read that? Well, go read the gospel of Luke and you'll see the Holy Week so clear as the God man is crucified. Gospel clarity abounded in this season. I bet Paul couldn't see it. Not initially, at least. But Luke tells us he did see it and he saw its value. Do you think that way? Brother and sister, I'm serious. Do you think about the work you're doing, if you're doing it to the glory of God, do you think of it as being something that is blessed, even when you can't see it right now, because if you keep doing it to God's glory, the promise is he's going to use that, even it may be way later. Are you okay with that? Paul had to work to a place to be able to say, yeah, I'm okay with that. Can you get there? I hope so. God is perfectly in control, even when we think he is not. So let us hold fast, as the Hebrew author says, to the confession of our hope without wavering. For the one, he, God, who promised, he's faithful. Amen? Amen. That's Paul's charges, uh, charity, and, and his conclusion that we see in the text. Now on to point two, Paul's passion. Paul's passion. Let's do some more C's. Let's see the curiosity and the content and the conclusion. If you're note-taking, it'll be the the curiosity and then there's some content and then another conclusion. Paul's passion for this married couple, uh, I think, really needs to be examined because outside of the two years, think about this, the two years point that Luke makes in this as to what God's doing here, he says that alongside these Almost as many verses, they're 22 dealing to the end, 27, you know, a little bit more for the actual court case and what happened. But, but, but a lot of verses here zooming in on one relationship, uh, one relationship. If you're reading this story as a believer, I think if you're like me, you want this couple to come to faith in Christ. <laughs> when you read it, you know, you should be thinking, and I think the recipients of the letter would be thinking, are, are Felix and, and Drusilla going to be saved? At least they should want that. How does someone come to faith in Christ when they're in such a place of power and celebrity and public eye? You may tell you, they come to Christ the same way that the lowliest, poor, uh, forgotten person comes to Christ. They repent of their sin and they believe and trust in Christ for salvation. Now, we don't know the final state of any soul, much less this couple, Felix, and Drusilla, but scripture leaves them for us to examine here, which is what I want to do. And to do that, we've got to start with their curiosity. Let me say something about sharing the gospel real quick, because often I think we don't share the gospel. A lot of times we don't share it because we assume that people that we're in front of won't care. Like we think that they're already dismissing the gospel with their lives. And so we just think, well, they're not going to care, so I won't share it. I'm glad Paul didn't think that about Felix and Drusilla. Notice what Luke uncovered for us. Uh, The reader, as he studied things, uh, you know, to present in verse 22, Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. You see that? Put them, it says, and that's the Jewish accusers of Paul off. So he he put them off. And Luke says, it's it's this idea, Felix had a rather accurate knowledge of the way when, when Luke wrote Acts. He has knowledge of the way. Okay, the, the, the private term, you know, mainly, that, that's a private idea. It's something barely public. And those who know and follow Jesus and the gospel message want to be sensitive to that. In other words, God is doing something all the time in someone, whether you see it or not. And it seems as though in this text, at this moment, God was up to something, at least, when we see that Felix cares about this stuff. The way is the sect that's being, he's being told, oh, it's Nazarite. It's, it's this, it's this Jewish warriors. They're going to overtake Rome. Felix is able to dismiss that quickly. Why? Well, God has put in him an understanding already of the way, at least enough to make him stay Paul's death and then move on. Let me show you some more curiosity. Look at verse 24. Felix and his wife sinned for Paul personally. 
And then we get Luke's understanding to hear about faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you got to ask yourself, what? <laughs> Are you serious? Notice they're curious enough, even though they live a wealthy lifestyle, to hear Paul out. Now, granted, I'm going to be honest. As I studied them in history this week, I, I, I think it was probably something that they were more than likely bored of their lives. Uh, you know, they're spending those days with Things, if things are good, they get to just live pleasure and enjoy what they're doing. And, you know, if you ever have the opportunity to get fat and full and bored, uh, you'll probably be looking at each other and be like, what do you want to do now? Like, I don't know. You want to like read some philosophy or something? Sure. Right. Uh, sometimes too much resource does that. And so there may be them just being like, hey, got this one prisoner and Drusilla being a Jewish princess. We're going to talk about her in a second. But, but she's Jewish. The Bible tells you that there. She, maybe she says, hey, this prisoner, I've heard a lot about him. We've heard a lot about him. You know, he, he's doing some things. Let's have him up. Let him do his clown show. You know, let's hear him out. Maybe that's it. We don't know their motives, but we know this. There's enough curiosity that they send for him. They send for Paul and have him brought before them. Don't discredit that as curious. Verse 26, a bit of a letdown, I think, but an honest one. Luke tells us in this verse that Felix was corrupt. So if you're wondering why I'm coming down so hard on the guy, Luke did it first, right? Did you hear that? I mean, he brings Paul in, not just this one time, but a lot of times hoping that Paul's going to give him a bribe. Now, this is the wrong type of curiosity. Got to admit that. But I'm going to tell you right now, in the economy of witnessing, like in this age where we're going out and we're sharing the gospel, we lean into doors like this all the time. Someone wants to come to me and be like, Jesus ain't true because, you know, Muhammad is the real prophet of God. Look, that's a curiosity about Jesus. It may be wrong, but when they say that, I'm full shoulder kicking the door down, being like, I'd love to talk to you about that. Let me tell you about who Jesus really is. So you got to count curiosity even when maybe it's militant. And in a lot of ways, he's a very bad ruler. Remember that. The Roman leaders like him should not get a bribe. If it gets back to Rome in a, in a scandalous way that he's taking a bribe, he's swimming with the fishes, okay? It's over. He's replaced. And uh, so, knowing that, can we call this curiosity? Yes. Paul will realize that there's something to work with there. Our point's clear, isn't it? This couple is as curious, I think, as any lost couple or any lost individual that you would meet on the streets anywhere. Anywhere. Yeah, they're Roman. Yeah, their sin and love for it has a certain flavor that feels like Rome. It doesn't feel or read or sound like 2020 and plus, you know, 2022 and, and, and these early 2000s and 50s and whatever you are old enough to remember as being the defining you know, center. But there are, there's common curiosity in the lost. Why? Because God put it there. They're made in God's image, ruined by the fall, in need of someone to sit with them a while and tell them, have you considered the greatness of God? Paul gets to do that. He was sensitive to their curiosity. Let me ask you a question. Does this encourage you or does it challenge you? Because it should. God places Paul strategically in this path with these two for two years, and that's not a mistake. Ask yourself, are you putting yourself in a place as you live, as you work, as you go, as you do what you do with this mentality? that God has appointed every single moment and relationship for his glory and for you to be able to do what Paul's doing here? The answer is yes, Christian. I don't want to be braggadocious in this, but me and Jack this week, we had a chance not to do anything special, but we're sitting down and we were having breakfast and our waitress, we just asked her if we could pray for her about something. And she mentioned her daughter was sick. We said, all right, we'll pray for that. So we prayed. And later on, she interrupted us and she said, you know, that's the, you're the second people in this booth that have asked how they can pray for me. And I just thought that was interesting. And then she began to, she didn't know what to do. She was like, I wanted to tell you this, but I don't know what to do with it. And me and Jack were able to tell her. We don't think that's a coincidence. God is involved in such things. You can know God. Do you know God? And we had a conversation with her. We got her number. A young pray for her. We're going to follow up with her. That's awesome, right? So not sharing that to be, oh, look at us. But I'm saying this stuff happens. Do you believe that? You believe that people right now in this city around you, you work with them, you live with them, you're, you're friends with them, you'll see them, that God is working in their life in such a way that when you bumped into them, their curiosities, wrong or right, are used 
used in God's grace to get you to share with them the love of Jesus. You have to believe that. If you do, you'll be like Paul, which is the next thing. What does Paul do with that, right? It's like, they're like softball. You want to tell us a little bit about things? Okay, well, listen, don't just, uh, you know, be there, but actually share your faith, which is the content. So if that's the curiosity, let's see the content of Paul's passion. Remember, Paul's perseverance, but we're looking now at Paul's passion. That was point two. Sorry, I meant to give you that. Curiosity, now the content. Uh, what do you say when someone is curious? Well, let's look at what Paul said. He uh, includes an outline for us. Look at verse 25. So Luke says, when this happened, he reasoned about what? Do you see this? Here's Paul's three points. Righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. This is so good. You got to get this. He talked to them about righteousness. Now, we don't know anything beyond that. But you ever read Paul on righteousness? The righteousness of Christ compared to the unrighteousness of everyone else is one of Paul's favorite subjects. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and they've fallen short of what? The glory, the righteousness, the doxa, the, the ultimate of God. You think they need to hear that? <laughs> That's some bold preaching that Paul does here. They need to hear it. There's a righteousness that is alien to you because you're unrighteous, but God has made a way. Okay, self-control. That's his second point. What is self-control? Self-control is submitting your heart and your soul and your mind and your body to God to glorify Him. Self-control is following His commands because He loves you and taking His holiness as your standard and goal of life. You are to be holy as He is holy. That is self-control. You think they need to hear that? He likely didn't scream and, and be a tirade about their licentiousness and how they live like pagans. He wasn't blasting them in this moment because I believe the story would probably be different. Felix would be like, yep, nope, you're done. Killed, gone. He had that kind of power. I doubt Paul was, you know, and not to mention, let's just say, regardless of the time, that's just unbiblical. Let me tell you why it's unbiblical. Because in the same book, Romans 1, it talks about those who practice and he lists off, you know, horrible sins. I mean, all, all these sins and are ungrateful and, you know, they're liars and they're thieves and they're, they're drunkards and homosexual and practicing evil things and, and their, their bestiality. I mean, that's just so much. It's just so wicked in Romans 1. And you think, yeah, Paul's about to tell them about self-control. You're going, you're going to hell for practicing those things. And then he writes in Romans 2, do you presume on the riches and the kindness of God's mercy, forgetting that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance? Paul talks about self-control. Make no mistake, he would have called him out, but he would have remembered what he's already written. God's kindness is what led Paul to repentance. Paul was that murderer. He'll write to the Corinthians and say, you know, these don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. They're horrible, drunkards, immoral, practicing witchcraft, evil people, just absolute, like hell's filled with this. Hey, don't forget, such were some of you. You were just like that, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were, what? Set apart to glorify God. So Paul keeps all that in mind, but he does make it clear. You need self-control, do you not? Man, they need to hear that. Third point, the coming judgment. Paul's content? You know, some people will say, well, if you're going to share the gospel, like, you better tell people fire and brimstone, you know, heaven, hell. Okay, that's true. But what, what, what did Paul do? He said the coming judgment. Yes, but likely not with a hatred that we've come to associate that preaching with. Paul likely begged them to consider the wrath of God, to turn from their sin and to Jesus, because God's judgment is real. Uh, Hebrews 10 says, just as it is appointed for a man or woman to die once, and after that comes judgment, right? That's clear. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. And not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, like, you're under the wrath of God, Felix, Drusilla. You need to understand that God will come again, and he doesn't come like he came the first time. The first time, he was rejected by his people like a lamb, silent and willing to die on the behalf of his elect. That's what he did. And I stand here to tell you, he's coming back, and he's not a lamb when he comes back. He's a lion. A lion roaring, seeking to judge those who have not placed their faith in Christ. To do what? Cast them into eternal torment. 
You need to flee now from the wrath of God. You need to choose Jesus. You need to believe. Outside of Christ, Paul says, you'll be judged. Now, what do we make of such bold preaching? Is it normal? Yes. <laughs> Don't be discouraged. Yes. This is how you should share the gospel with people. You should talk to people about these topics. You should be thanking righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment. That's a good outline for evangelism. When we were training our church, I don't know how we missed this one. Probably just because the Bible just wants to say this all the time, right? But we're here we are preaching the full counsel of God's word. And what's the Bible saying? Paul's ready on the spot to say things about who Jesus is, and he's thinking biblically. Righteousness, self-control, coming judgment. Is this normal for your life, brother or sister? Church, is it normal for your life? We say in discipleship in RBC, you should have salty conversations with people that leave them thirsty for Jesus. Salty conversations. Be salt and light. Let your life be salty. That when you interact with people, they walk away thinking, you know that, I know I disagree with him, but, but that, that really bothers me what he said. It just bothers me. I just want to know more about that. Paul had that kind of visit. And he had it all the time. Is that you? Consider your own opportunities. Consider the ones you took. Consider the ones you've missed to preach Jesus to others. Realize, brother and sister, there is an ability right now to adopt this content as your own. You want to know how to be awesome like Paul and sharing the gospel? Just read your Bible. I bet Paul, I mean, he was writing a lot of the Bible at this time. But you know what he had in this prison time? He had the parchments. God's grace again. Felix allowing him to have all of his friends and all what he needs. Paul could sit down with the scriptures while he's waiting on that call and pour over the Old Testament, seeing Isaiah, that lamb slain, seeing Isaiah again, that righteous one to come. I mean, Paul saw it, he showed up, and that's what came out. You want to you have better content, read your Bible. Paul presents the gospel to them, um, and we should do the same. That's his content. What's the conclusion? Final, final, final word here. What do we know from the text and then what do we know from history about what happened with this married couple? Okay, well, the text tells us what Paul shared with them, that it caused Felix, at least him, to be alarmed. Look at verse 25. You see alarmed? I love this word. And I'm like adopting it and I'm taking it into my evangelism prayers and I'm going to start praying. Emphobos, emphobos, emphobos. Um, I'm not Greek great, but that's what it is. Now, I'm telling you the word because you may recognize a phobos to mean fear, like a phobia that you have. You're scared of something, you know, arachnophobia. I got that. Spiders are terrifying, right? Hate spiders. I like looking at them. They get on me. I'm going to freak out. You know, some people hate sharing the gospel and they get in those situations and they freak out. Bobos, you're scared, you know? Well, cool, calm Felix, who's, he's heard it all, you know, he's educated. He's got money. He's got power. He's sitting there. Okay, do your little clown dance. Let's hear it. Yeah, righteousness, righteousness. Okay. Uh oh. Uh, okay, self-control, all right? Yeah, don't, not me, not her, not us. Yeah, that's fine. The judgment, infobos. His fear became terror, terror. Take phobos, fear, put more on it. That's what this Greek word's doing. When it says he was alarmed at what Paul said, for a moment, Luke wants you to realize this man has a huge rock thrown in his shoe <laughs> and it is going to be something really hard for him to ignore, he does. In the text, it also tells us the rest of his reaction is what? Okay, you know what? I'm still in power here. Don't you forget, I'll call you later if I need you. That's how that reads. He sends him away, and I'll call you if need be. We're fine. Everything's fine. It's not fine in his soul. Infobos. He, is, he has true terror. Now, Paul doesn't see it, and honestly, history doesn't see it about Felix, which is sad. But at least for this moment, I think it's encouraging to us if we want to grow in being a faithful witness for Jesus is here is a man that thought he had it all figured out and the gospel came and it just ran him over. I heard a brother tell me, and it was in a book that he loved one time, and he always talked about this, this, this man that I'm talking about. And um, When you meet the gospel, if you actually get it to someone, whatever they walk away thinking, know this, when, you, when the gospel, it's like a semi-truck running someone over. And if a semi-truck runs you over physically, you don't hop up if you live through that and think, I just had a little accident. 
I just had to run in with something that was, you know, it's no big deal. It wasn't that, whatever. If a, if a semi truck runs you over, you're dead. Such is the power of the gospel as it confronts unbelief. Tout whatever you want, Felix. The Bible has outed you, sir. You got to deal with this. This Jesus, you got to deal with. House Jesus in your basement for two years all you want. Go live the life that you and your you know, Jewish princess are going to live, you know, high and happy. But make no mistake, what you've heard is the standard. He knows it, doesn't he? He's awakened to it. He'll call on him more to hear. But we learned something. He's been listening to Paul. Lost people listen, right? One of the things Paul had said was he had come to bring money to Jerusalem, which is true. This is the only time in Acts where Luke reports that, that, that Paul himself says something about the almsgiving that he's bringing. He, wrote, he writes about it elsewhere. This is the only spot in Acts where he alludes to it. And clearly, it's a lot of money. And what, what does Felix hear? He thinks, okay, this is an opportunity for me to pay off the debts. You know, I got, I got, this is an opportunity for me to get money. And two things interest him, Paul's money and Paul's gospel. And for two years, there's, Luke reports, there's this weird thing happening where Paul's able to come to him and, and his wife and talk to him about the gospel. But then for love of the, the world, the thorns of life, it seems like there's this plaguing um, inability of Felix to repent and believe the gospel. That's kind of where the text leaves it. The text is going to leave it there because Luke tells us at the end, Felix is out and Festus is in. Well, what does history say? History talks a lot, actually, about a woman named in here, Drusilla. Drusilla is a Jewish princess. I want you to hear her story. She was the youngest of three daughters born to Herod Agrippa I and is reported to have been very beautiful. Josephus and Tacitus both tell us this. Both King Agrippa I and his son, Agrippa II, they were rulers. And when you study the, the Herod family, the Herodian dynasty, it is a huge mess, all right? It is very hard to understand because they're the worst. Like, they are the worst people. And they're murdering each other, and they're killing their own sons, and they're trying to keep power. And they say that they're Jewish and want to please the Jews, but all the Jews hate them. I mean, it's, it's like, I'm telling you, it's Kardashian. Like, it's gross, and it's weird, and it's horrible, and it's all over the place. And they're the powerful people that everybody wants to look at. And so Drusilla's born into that. She's beautiful. Her daddy tries to give her to a man, a wicked man, uh, that's a pagan. And he won't, he doesn't end up doing it because that man refuses to be circumcised. She was likely 12 when he did that. Betrothed her maybe as early as four, but they think historically 12 years old and she's given over and, and, uh, and he, does, he won't be circumcised. And so not him. Another man, also for political profit, he's a pagan. He, Isaiah is his name, is Ezim. He's a king in that region. And for purposes of power, she marries him. It's her first husband. And he was willing to be circumcised. But Felix shows up at a party of some sort. And there's this story Tacitus tells of how Drusilla and them got together. A magician, evidently. And some, some theologians wrongly connected to Simon the magician. So this is where I'm telling you. It's extra biblical, but man, it's in her weaving all the time. But what happens is, is that she ends up, Felix ends up stealing Drusilla to be his wife. And now they're married. And now our Bible wants to clue us in on Drusilla and Felix, this Jewish princess. Her and Felix have a son. You know what happens to that son? He's one of the few people we know, we know by name and by account because we've excavated Pompeii, that he died in 79 AD. This married couple's son died when a volcano called Mount Vesuvius exploded and covered the city in ash and it vaporized people because it's like an atomic bomb going off. And one of those who lost their life, we know was Drusilla's son and most conclude likely was her. How sad. I hope Drusilla had the gospel if she did live through that to get an answer as to why God would allow her son to die. But here's what I do know. Because the Bible tells us this. So regardless of what we speculate, we know that in this moment, she heard it. She heard it. I want you to feel the weight of their story because we don't know. And you will share the gospel if you do it faithfully with hundreds, maybe thousands of people before you die that you have no clue what their life will do. Sometimes it gets recorded and you get to see it. Most of the time it doesn't. But will you share it? Will you share it? We don't know. But here's the thing we do know about the text. Paul was faithful. 
and we should try to be too. Three questions I want to ask you from this. It's from the outline to close. People are curious. Legitimately, guys, but people that don't know God are curious. Will you be bold and meet their curiosity? This text demands you answer that as a Christian. When you do, people need content. They need gospel content. Question, will you share the truth even if it's costly or hard to that relationship? Thirdly, when you share and nothing seems to happen, maybe years later the worst happens, will you trust that God is in control? Paul did. It got him through it. He persevered. It made him an example of passion and something that we can learn from. And we're going to see as weeks to come, it's going to carry him all the way to when he finishes his race and he stands before his father and he hears, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into my kingdom. Until then, Paul's going to write to the Corinthians and he's going to write to the Ephesians and he's going to write to the churches and he's going to give them the instructions more. But today, his example leaves us with something that I hope sends us into song. We're going to sing about the blood of Jesus. We're going to believe together that these things represent, they're a symbol of the gospel. And we're going to you know, have hope together that will one day become a future hope. And I pray with a whole lot of people that we've gotten this message out to. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Paul. And God, even thank you for the heartbreaking example of Felix and Drusilla. Lord, it'd be silly for us to ask for their salvation now, for in their life, it's finished. They have stood before you, regardless of what they did in this life, good or bad, for you don't judge according to their works. You judge them according to the works of your son. Father, they have already experienced in judgment either the welcoming hope that they had the gospel or the damning reality that they lived an arrogant life and now they will be separated from you forever. Lord, as we think about them, help us now to think about those around us, our own children who don't know you, our lost friends, our lost family members that don't honor you as Christ, as, as Lord, our lost friends, those around us. God, help us to be a people that value the gospel and when it comes time and we have opportunity, let us open our mouths to preach righteousness that is not our own, self-control that comes from you, and the glorious hope of the resurrection and judgment for those who believe. Father, equip us, we pray. Use what you've been using for years and years in your church, the preached word, the sung word, and then when we get to do it, communion. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.